Let's take a moment again to seek our Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for uh, our children uh, and for the responsibility that has been entrusted to us to uh, train them and to raise them up in the knowledge of Christ. And we pray for the the teachers and leaders of MKids this morning that uh, you would bless them, Father, and help them impart in ways that the children can understand who Jesus is and what he means uh, for them as they uh, attend church as they grow up in families where the gospel is at the center of the home. We also remember, Father, to pray for uh, Mark and Hannah and Charlotte Donald, and we pray that your, um, your hand of grace would be upon them as they serve and minister there in Dubai. For Mark, Father, as he uh, leads Bible studies, for uh, Hannah as she works with uh, students as well, and is able to open up their home uh, and entertain. We thank you for the good news of, of uh, souls being converted to faith in Christ for baptisms. We pray for Charlotte as well as uh, she is healing from uh, a broken arm. May your grace continue to uphold them, and uh, we thank you for the privilege of supporting them, not only financially, but certainly in our prayers. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a refuge. Uh, We thank you, Father, that uh, in those moments when we find it difficult to pray, we can retreat into your word. For those moments when we find your word um, a bit drier and not speaking to us as we would like, we we thank you for the opportunity we have to think on your word and to meditate on it. And, Father, even when that doesn't serve its purpose, we thank you for your table for the bread and for the wine, which are physical reminders of your grace, your mercy, your love, your great sacrifice made on our behalf. And may, Father, our celebration of this table lead us back to your word, lead us back in prayer, lead us back in serious contemplation of what it means to trust you as our shield, uh, to take your yoke, Father, and uh, to not live in fear, but to live in hope, uh, to have, um, as we come this morning, as has already been mentioned, we come, Father, from a week perhaps that has been very tiring, very anxiety-producing, and the world has dressed us in anxiety and fear and frustration, and here is a place where we can remove that clothing and be reminded again we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. We are clothed with your grace, your mercy, your peace. More than that, you, are, you have filled us with your grace, your mercy, and peace through the presence of your Spirit and the fellowship that we enjoy with you and the Father uh, as we have been blessed and sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So open our hearts now, we ask, Lord God, that we would hear your word, receive it, understand it, and apply it. And I pray that you would help me as I preach it, to preach with clarity, with a way of imparting the truth that is here in a way that can be applied such that it would lead to praise, honor, and glory, and the sharing of it with others. Father, we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have moved into the second half of uh, Zechariah's prophecy. The overall theme, if you remember, uh, of the book is strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, borrowing that line from the old hymn. 
strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow as the exiles have been returned uh, to Israel and now are called to start the process of rebuilding, restoring, and recovering their identity as uh, the people of Israel. So Zechariah commissioned with this responsibility along with Haggai the prophet. Uh, His prophecy precedes uh, Zechariah in the Old Testament, but they were contemporaries and they were ministering to the people. So as we begin uh, our look at Zechariah 10, I want to just pick up the last two verses of uh, Zechariah 9 to keep things in context because 10 flows out of the end of uh, chapter 9. And so the prophet, in speaking to his people, says, On that day uh, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. From the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock in the house of Judah, and I will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, and from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them, Together, They shall be like the mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, And their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scatter them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. There's a lot there, a great deal of promise, a great deal of hope, a great deal of strength for today and hope for tomorrow as Zechariah uh, speaks continually to his generation. And the more I continue working through Zechariah, uh, there is a, a term, a phrase that keeps coming to mind. It's one I'm sure that uh, you are familiar with if you are in any kind of business or corporate setting, uh, and that term is institutional memory. Uh, according to a recent article um, on the website of betterhealth.com, institutional memory is the total collected amount of knowledge possessed by a group of people. These could include concepts, experiences, facts, 
and any other kind of knowledge. And the group of people can include friends or an organization. So you have corporations, you have government entities, schools, families, and especially churches, religious groups, all have institutional memory, and they rely on institutional memory to create and sustain a culture that can be uh, maintained over years and generations, all united by the same customs, culture, and traditions, the same set of values. And it's important that an institutional memory is carried forward, particularly if it's the foundation of how a group identifies itself. And so given that importance, institutional memory needs to be always transferred between different members of that organization. It's a way for people to keep an ideology going, uh, knowing how something works. It's why in, in our families we pass down traditions, maybe a holiday tradition or a birthday celebration or even a language, family recipes, stories of parents and grandparents from the old country, or how when they came to this country they were able to build a life together. Those memories form an institutional memory that sort of cohere the group and keep it close together. The problem is when you apply that same understanding to Zechariah's generation and knowing the circumstances surrounding their return, well, first their exile, uh, and now their return uh, to the promised land, it's very likely the generation that Zechariah is talking to has little to no institutional memory of what it meant to be Israel. Remember, they hadn't seen Solomon's temple. They had not seen Jerusalem in all of its glory. They had not experienced at all any of the peace that Solomon brought. All they knew was captivity. And so in many ways, this generation that has returned after 70 years of captivity in Babylon and to the Medes, to the Persians, they're very much like that generation that Moses led out of slavery from Egypt. They don't know how to be Israel. They don't know how to be the people of God. And so like Moses, who had to train them and teach them what it meant to worship the Lord alone, to serve Him and to love Him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, it's Zechariah's responsibility along with Haggai and Ezra and then later on Nehemiah when he arrives, they had to teach and to instill once again uh, by recalling its institutional memory of the Exodus, of how God had redeemed the people and to remind them of what Moses had told that first generation that came out of Egypt there in, in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. This very famous passage known as the Shema, hear, Shema, hear, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command to you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk in your way, and when you lie down, and when you arise. So the way that this institutional memory, this connection with previous generations who were redeemed by God, begins with hearing, it continues with loving, carried forth in teaching, because words and conduct lead to a lifestyle. So hearing, loving, lifestyle, all of these will contribute to the rebuilding, the recovering, and the restoring of the institutional memory that made Israel Israel. And God gave to Zechariah the responsibility of recovering, rebuilding, and restoring 
Israel's institutional memory. It's really what the prophets were designed to do as well. That was their calling. Even before the exile, they were always, you read Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, Hosea, read all the prophets, and it's all a call to remember this great work that God has done and has continued to do among his people. And so as one who is charged with this awesome responsibility, Zechariah himself must realize that it's not by might, not by power, but by God's Holy Spirit that he is to help Israel, this generation has returned, to recover, rebuild, and restore their institutional memory of what it means to be Israel. To even though they live in, amongst a foreign people and now have been returned to their land to once again rely on God to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. He's already returned them uh, to their homeland. He's redeemed them, if you will, from their captivity. And now he is going to teach them. So if you were to follow where we're going in Zechariah 10, uh, the big idea is that God will continue to do for his people what we cannot do for ourselves that he will give his people everything that they need for life and mission, and that he will gather his people like a shepherd gathers his sheep. Because the reason why God has brought Israel back to Israel is so that he can equip them and make them as they had, he intended them to be, salt and light for the nations. And he has to do that by gathering them together. So let's look at the, that first part there, where you know, God will give his people everything they need for life and mission. This is verses 1 through 5. This is following on uh, the end of chapter 9, where the young men and the, and the young women will flourish because God will make grain and wine abound. And so he, he says, does the prophet, ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. From the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense and the diviners lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, my people, uh, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic battle, uh, steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the ten peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. It's a great promise there, in terms of God standing up for his people. It begins with this command to ask the Lord for rain. Rain throughout the Bible is a symbol, particularly in Israel's instance, rain throughout the Bible is a symbol of God's blessing. And uh, these, uh, this new generation that has returned is encouraged to seek the Lord for this provision of rain because with rain comes a, a healthy harvest and with a healthy harvest comes food enough to last for the winter. It's also in connection with the promise that God made to that generation that had come out of Egypt, led by Moses, and I referred to it in last week's sermon from Deuteronomy 28, that if Israel sought the Lord, if they asked him and trusted him for their provision, that they would be blessed. They, blessed would be the fruit of your womb, blessed would be the fruit of your ground, the fruit of your cattle, and the increase in your herds. And the younger of your flock, blessed shall be your basket and kneading bowl. So all of these things, all of these blessings 
these provisions of children, of food, of cattle, livestock, would all come as a result of Israel trusting in the Lord. But you can get the sense, as you heard me read the rest of that text there from verses 2 on, that 70 years of living with a foreign people, where the people that the nation that held you captive worshipped many gods, not just and not the God of Israel, that would have caused the institutional memory of that generation and subsequent generations to fade away. And as a result, they would have suffered a, a form of spiritual amnesia, which would have caused them to be persuaded that, you know, while it's good to worship Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when we plant our crops, you know, we notice that these other folks, these pagans, when they plant their crops and they pray to their gods, their crops grow just as well, maybe abundantly as ours. So let's add to our worship of Yahweh the worship of Baal and Asherah and these other gods, and let's just combine them all together. We'll cover all of our spiritual bases so that all the gods are happy. And that kind of syncretism just doesn't work when you have a God in Israel who demands absolute and total and complete and utter loyalty to himself and himself alone. It reminds me, I think it was, uh, I think it was D.A. Carson who coined the, the expression that one generation uh, believes the gospel, the next generation assumes the gospel, and then the third generation forgets it. And so it's very likely that you had that same pattern happening among the exiles. That the first generation knew it, second generation assumed it, the third generation, which would represent Zechariah's own time, they just had forgotten it. Or if they had remembered it at all, had somehow incorporated into their theology, you know, let's pay attention to these other gods. You get a taste of this if you read Psalm 73 and read how Asaph struggles with the fact that those who don't know the God of Israel seem to do just as well as those that do. In fact, they do far better than that the gods, the, the, the folks that worship the God of Israel actually struggle and have a very difficult life. And then Asaph, as he's wrestling with this, internally thinking to himself, if I were to say this out loud to my generation, it would have been devastating as a priest to, in, to reveal that this is the doubt that I have. And his solution is to go into the temple and to worship, to come into the presence of God. And there he says, I have clarity. And I begin to see that God has set the pagans who don't worship him on a slippery slope. That if all they have to trust in in this life is their wealth and their prosperity, Surely all is lost. And so far be it to trust in the God of Israel, in whom is my hope, in whom is my deliverance, in whom is my salvation, even though I may not be blessed, so-called, with all of the trappings of earthly prosperity, I have him. And be having him, he says, there's nothing on else that I would desire. Zechariah's generation needs to be reminded of this because that's part of our institutional memory. And as we live and we raise our children and as we, uh, if we're blessed with grandchildren and we interact with them and they interact with a culture that tells them these are the values you need to adopt. Oh yeah, you may have picked up some things in church, but you know, it's the, it's the person who does this that really gets ahead in life. It's the person who does that. 
if you really want to judge how much God loves you, you need to have X amount of dollars or X amount of this or that. And we begin to think, yeah, maybe that's the way God has designed it. When in fact, it's the very opposite. It's trusting in him and him alone. Not the, the gods that our world would create. Remember, it was Zechariah's generation, it was their ancestors who adopted that sort of synthesized kind of religion. And that's the reason why they went into captivity. That's the reason why they went into exile. But at the same time, the, the people of Zechariah's generation, they are not entirely at fault. They are not entirely at blame for this uh, mixture, this idolatrous mixture of worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the pagan gods of the Babylonians, Medes, and Persians. They worship, we're told in verse 3, they worship these other gods uh, because they were sheep without a shepherd. They, uh, they trusted uh, in these pagan gods because the priests in Israel had neglected their responsibility to do what Moses did and to teach the people what it meant to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and strength. So ultimately, the, the people's idolatry can be traced back to the priest's failure to pass on the institutional memory of the Exodus. Especially that first commandment that God gave to Moses in Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. And, he, and God prefaces that by saying, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. This is why God then says in verse 3, my anger is hot against the shepherds. I love that in Hebrew, I think the literal phrase is, my face is hot. You know, when you get angry sometimes, or you get red-faced. Right? So that's the image that God is, is, his anger is hot against the shepherds, meaning the, the priests. I will punish the leaders for the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. Should have been the priest's responsibility to carry out that care and concern, but the Lord now declares his care. And particularly, he, the, he, the Lord sort of centralizes the flock that he's talking about to the house of Judah. And he says, I will make them like his majestic steed in battle. We'll unpack that in just a moment. So let's just take a moment, just think about this for a moment, that shepherds, whether they're priests, whether they're kings, or whether they're prophets, or whether they're pastors, have a high responsibility, which is why God holds them to such a higher standard. He gets angry when his shepherds fail to carry out their ministry of transferring faithfully and accurately the institutional memory, or as Jude says in his letter, the, the faith once delivered to all the saints. There's a responsibility that God gives to those in spiritual leadership to transfer that knowledge. We see this especially and very clearly in, uh, in the New Testament letter to, uh, of James, the brother of the Lord. James writes in chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Remember when I first read this in college, there are a lot of uh, education minors, uh, majors rather, in the university group that I belong to. And they all got sort of wiggly at this. Said, oh, no, should we not go into become a... It was like, no, no, no. We you know, asked our pastor and said, no, he's talking about pastors. <laughs> it's like not those necessarily going into you know, teaching English or history or science. It's talking about those who are given the responsibility of teaching the word. The pastors and teachers are under shepherds of the great shepherd, of the good shepherd. 
And so we're entrusted with the task of accurately and faithfully transferring the institutional memory of the gospel. The failure to do so carries a penalty. Now, having said that, you may not always agree with the method with which that knowledge is transferred, but it's still being transferred. And having said that, let me say this, <laughs> that I am very, very grateful, in addition to being very, very humbled by the fact that I am part of a team of pastors that is passionately devoted to transferring the, to this generation the institutional memory of the gospel. That the, the, the men that are in spiritual um, oversight over this uh, membership, over this, this church, they, they work extremely, extremely hard to pray, to disciple, to counsel, to correct, to instruct, and to encourage us all to know the gospel, to live out the gospel, to share the gospel. They are committed, every one of them, to um, using the gifts that God has equipped them with to build up every member of Maranatha until, I like how the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 4, uh, 13 and 14. So the pastors here are committed to using their gifts so that uh, we all will attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, growing into maturity, reaching our full height in Christ, and so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So our goal as pastors is to faithfully transmit the institutional knowledge of the gospel, the truthfulness of it, the beauty of it, the glory of it, so that we all may attain to the unity. So, so we learn from you as you learn from us. However, in Zechariah's day, the, the priests failed to do this. And so God promises to do something about it. He promises to send, because he cares for his flock, the house of Judah in particular, which represents the, 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 the southern kingdom, but certainly the house of Judah, the tribe itself, this promise is fulfilled. We know it's fulfilled because in John 10, 11, Jesus stands up and he says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd, this is how you know that the good shepherd is transferring the institutional memory of the truth about who God is. He says, because the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Lord uses, in, in Zechariah, three metaphors to describe this ministry that Jesus has as a good shepherd. Three metaphors that are taken right from everyday life. Cornerstone, tent peg, and a battle bow. As a cornerstone, then, Jesus is the, indeed the, the solid rock in whom we are joined together and on whom we are built into a temple in which God dwells by his Holy Spirit. But Jesus is also the tent peg. We're going to go camping later on, Jill and I, in July. We bought ourselves a tent. We haven't gone tent camping Almost never. <laughs> so this will be interesting. But if you have gone camping, you know the importance of a tent peg. 
I mean, whether they're those little aluminum things or those tough plastic things, but back then, you know, 10 pegs made out of wood. And what does a 10 peg do? It provides stability and security to that structure so that it doesn't blow down in a strong wind. And so Jesus is like that. He holds us securely and firmly in his grip the way that a 10 peg holds a tent securely and firmly to the ground. And I love this image of Jesus' own description of his ministry as a 10 peg. He doesn't allude to it directly, but you can hear it in what he says again in John 10, speaking about himself as the good shepherd. He says, my sheep know my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand, that ten peg holding us secure. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who is in heaven has given them to me and is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then here's the seal, here's the seal that seals the deal. I and the Father are one. So here's a father giving to the son all those who trust in him. And as the, we are in Christ's hands, Christ is in God's hands, and we are held securely in their grip. And the unity of the son and the father guarantees our security, guarantees our growth, guarantees our memory and practice of what the gospel is. And then there is the description of Christ as the battle bow, which is the royal weapon of a royal warrior. Think of a bow, it's, it's an offensive weapon to be sure, but it can also be a defensive weapon. Because as defender, go back to Zechariah's vision of God promising to be a wall of fire around his people in the glory in their midst. He is that pillar of cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night. He defends. It's what Jesus is talking about in the Great Commission. In the end of Matthew, Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. We know that because at Pentecost, the Spirit descends, empowers us in the strength and power of the gospel to go out, to proclaim with mission who Jesus is and what he has done. At the same time, Jesus tells his apostles that when you go forward, as the king goes with his battle bow, says, you build my church through the proclamation of the word such that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he defends us as we go and he enables us to, with the gospel, take back enemy territory with the gospel. So we're defended by the truth and the truth is now the very thing we use to bring others under the command and leadership of the Good Shepherd in whose hand we are firmly held. So what do we have in Christ as a cornerstone, the ten peg and the battle bow? Well, we have the source of our unity, we have the source of our security, and we have the supplier of our mission. So as a cornerstone, he's the source of our unity. As a ten peg, he is the source of our security. And as the battle bow, he is the source of our mission. He sends us out. At the same time, he defends us. And so he gives us all of these things for life and for mission. We're not just simply called to live in the, the grace of Christ. We're called to share it as well. And this is part of 
recovering, restoring, and rebuilding an institutional memory that Israel has to learn all over again. And God is instructing the priests to do their job. Which is why when you go back to the marvelous vision of Joshua the high priest being reinvested with pure vestments and a clean turban set on his head, God is reminding the priests, I have forgiven you, but I have now also commissioned you. Do the task to which I have called you. So we bear a responsibility to pass on the knowledge of the gospel. God will give us everything we need for life and mission. But then as we get into the second half of of the chapter, God now promises, because you can't pass along institutional memory if there are no people to whom you can pass that memory on to. So in order to do that, God says, I will now gather back all of my scattered people. So he'll gather his people together the way a a shepherd gathers his sheep. And uh, you you pick up the the narrative in uh, verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, which is a a nickname, another name for the house of Israel, the the northern tribe of his northern kingdom of Israel. I'll bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them. Just think about what that means. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim, another nickname for Israel, shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scatter them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. And I will bring them home from the land of Egypt, and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon, till there's no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles, and strike down the ways of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria will be laid low. The scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord." One thing I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, I just pointed out, just notice how many times in this chapter the phrase, I will, appears. God does this. This is God's work. We respond to it. That's, there's a great comfort in that. There's his, his sovereign initiative just screams grace, mercy, and sovereignty from this, that he is doing all of this work because he is a God of compassion, because he loves his people, and he also delights in his own glory, so that as he gathers us in his name, we give him glory. God promises to save the, the house of Joseph, Israel, also referred to as Ephraim. He wants to bring them, and he does bring them back home to the promised land, because his plan is to reunite these two tribes separated by civil war. Israel to the north, Judah to the south, these two kingdoms, rather, that were separated. He he wants to bring them so that they can be, to paraphrase uh, our Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God, indivisible, with justice and liberty for all. So they can be one nation again for the purpose of accomplishing the mission that he has called them to achieve so that they can carry on the memory of what it means to be Israel. And the, the reunion... The, the, the marvelous nature of this reunion is captured, I think, really well in, in a, a commentary by a man named Mark Boda. 
Because if you notice, there's a certain change. When, when, I, when I read verse 11, you know, there's God doing all of this, and in verse 11 it says, He will walk through the seas. Now, what's going on there? Well, maybe this comment from the commentary will be helpful. It says, the return, uh, this is Mark Bode, it says, the return of the northern tribes is compared to the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, but with an interesting twist. <clears throat> God, rather than the Israelites, will pass through the Sea of Trouble. Remember, during the exodus, it was Israel who passed through the Red Sea. Here, it's God, rather than the Israelites, who will pass through the Sea of Trouble, striking the surging seas. So whether the imagery here has been stretched beyond that of the Exodus tradition so that the sea is now equated with the Nile, or whether the word here refers to a water body other than the Nile, doesn't really matter. Because in the end, what God is going to do here is smash the pride and the rule of the nations who held his people captive, which in turn results in liberation for the exiles. But here's the thing. When you get to the New Testament, when God does this, when he goes through the sea of trouble, when he liberates his people from exiles, he doesn't smash his enemies militarily. He doesn't destroy them with the, the, the arrow and the sword. He doesn't trample them with the horse. That comes later at the end of time. But when Christ comes and fulfills the ministry of the cornerstone, the ten peg, and the battle bow, he dies. That's how he takes power from those who would seek to have power over his people. He gives himself in sacrifice. He passes through the sea of trouble, suffering the death that we deserve so that we might be raised to newness of life. And the reunion that God promises of Judah and Israel, it foreshadows a greater reunion to take place. He alludes to it, does Zechariah, or the Lord through Zechariah, when he talks about God bringing from Egypt, from Assyria, these Gentile nations, and he will gather them into his own people. We saw this as well in chapter 9, where God will take from pagan nations and make them as if they were always his people. So God will take, if you will, from his own covenant people, Israel, and add to them people from foreign nations who worship foreign gods who will now worship the God of Israel and acknowledge him. It's, it's foreshadowed and, and actually it's described eloquently in, in Ephesians 2. And I'm going to read this very long section from Ephesians 2. I know it's long, but the, the, the beauty of it in terms of the fulfillment of the gospel, in terms of how the, the institutional memory that Zechariah is, is imparting to his generation comes now to us through Christ, through the gospel, with the ability and the power to proclaim it, Paul writes this, he's talking to those that have been not born as citizens of Israel, not circumcised on the eighth day according to the law of Moses, but those who were Gentiles who were pagans, people like us. He says, therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what was called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing its hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, meaning Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, it's like this commercial, you know, you get this, but wait, there's more. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's Ephesians 2, 11 to 21. Worth pondering, worth memorizing. Because when those moments happen to us, and they do, we've sung about it as well, when temptations come, when we have sinned for the umpteenth time, the same sin that we're trying to escape from, when we've had that same argument that we've had ad infinitum, when we struggle with whether or not we, we sense that we are loved and held securely and firmly in the grip of Christ, go to Ephesians 2, 11 to 21. And marvel at what God has done in Christ for his glory and for your sake, for our sake, that you are held firmly in his grip. Yes, at one time, strangers and aliens, outside, no hope, without God, but now in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you're in the Father. And if you're in the Father, the Spirit is in you. And so you are held securely and firmly. See, if you don't have that institutional memory, if you don't have that understanding, it's why I think Paul says, remember. Remember from where you came and so that you can know where you are and see the difference and see the progress. Experience the strength for today and the hope, the bright hope for tomorrow that is yours and ours in Christ. That where we were once afraid of having access to the Father. We now can have that access open to us freely because Christ has made it possible. So there's no longer a dividing wall of hostility between peoples. There's also no longer a dividing wall of hostility between us and God the Father. From a human perspective, this reunion that Zechariah talks about is impo- sounds impossible. But remember, Zechariah 4.6, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's how the reunion takes place. That's how Jesus is able to do what he does for us through the cross. God is going to gather his people, says Zechariah. He will gather them from these nations. He scattered them like seeds. And it's amazing, when you scatter seeds, they will grow. They will find a way to grow. When I worked as a, a gardener's assistant, and I use that term loosely because not so much assistant, but gardener. I was responsible for caring for the grass and the flower beds. And I remember one time I scattered some grass seed and grass seed happened to fall into the flower garden. And the guy that I worked for came along one day and he noticed, he says, well, look at that, you got grass growing there, Mike. And I said, yeah. He said, well, what do you expect? You sow seed, it's going to grow. God sows his people like seeds among the nations and they grow despite having been sent and scattered. And he's going to bring them back so that because his church is designed to grow. I, you, you've seen the stories, you've read the, the, the websites and things like that where the church, when it's persecuted, grows mightily. 
And certainly in those countries where the gospel is restricted and, and Christians are actively persecuted, the gospel grows and it grows deep and it produces deep and steady Christians because they understand that there's a cost and a price to following Jesus. And we marvel at that because we're relatively comfortable in where we are in the United States. But God is going to gather all of these nations. He's going to include Gentiles. And just to remember, too, that this is a generation, Zechariah's generation, that is, that has little or no institutional memory of what it means to be Israel. It's a generation. Well, I mean, if it was our time, they'd be raised with, the, you know, a mall on every corner. A thousand different channels, whether you're streaming or have cable or satellite. Information from every conceivable part of the world, from every conceivable business entity, social media, or whatever. And we're bombarded with that stuff. And it's easy, in the midst of all of that bombardment, all of that information overload, the voice of the gospel can easily become smaller and quieter. But if you remember, if you meditate on things like Ephesians 2, 11 to 21, if you think about what the grace of God does, then it's easier to resist those things, turn a deaf ear to them. So one, of the, one of the best gifts I've ever received from my wife is a pair of noise-canceling headphones. Because our neighbors downstairs can be a bit loud, and there's a guy who lives down our street who every Saturday, and sometimes every Friday, decides it'd be a good idea. He has a, an SUV that essentially is one gigantic subwoofer. <laughs> and you can hear this guy a quarter of a mile away. So you can imagine how it sounds just two doors down. Like, <laughs> like the curtains in our apartment waver. Put those silent, those headphones on, man. I can hear my own heartbeat. Or I can listen to music. The gospel is like those noise-canceling headphones. You put them on. You read it. And it's like nothing can get in because the word is taking root. I have a book in my library written by a professor of preaching at Gordon Conwell named Jeffrey Authors. It's a very good book. It's called Preaching as Remembering. And in the uh, opening chapter, he uh, recounts the history of a very peculiar phrase, uh, the Lord's Remembrancer. And uh, he says the phrase, uh, you do a little historical research, it was coined in 1594 by a man bearing the wonderful name of Lancelot Andrews. He was chaplain both to Queen Elizabeth and King James I. And that phrase, the Lord's Remembrancer, comes from a sermon he preached called Remember Lot's Wife. He drew his metaphor from the royal court, that the king or queen's remembrancer is the oldest judicial position in continual existence in Great Britain. Even to today, it was created in 1154 by Henry II. So it's more or less more a ceremonial title today, but for centuries, uh, the remembrancer's job was to put the Lord Treasurer uh, and the barons of the court uh, in remembrance of pending business, taxes paid, taxes owed, and other things that were for the benefit of the crown. So in the sermon, what Andrews does is he says, preachers are the Lord's remembrancers. 
that we remind God's subjects of their covenant with the king of the universe. The sovereign king who initiated a relationship with his people, motivated, embraced, and sealed with his own blood, that he demands that they respond with worship, service, love, and fear. It's not just preachers who are the Lord's remembrancers, it's parents as well, and grandparents. Prophets also, like Zechariah, are the Lord's remembrancer. His commission is to help Israel recover, rebuild, and restore their institutional memory so that they'll worship, they'll love, they'll serve, and fear God above everything else. So all of us, whether young, old, or in between, we're encouraged to worship God and to remember Him with awe-filled hearts, glory-illuminated minds, and salvation-soaked souls. Because worship is how we remember God's mercy, grace, and kindness. Uh, it's how we remember his promise never to leave us or forsake us. It's how we remember God does indeed mend broken hearts and fans faint hearts back into flame. So, you young saints, you remember and you pay attention because our God is real. And he alone is God. He answers prayer. So you trust him. He strengthens fainting hearts with faith, with courage, and with hope. He will give you, and he does give you, what you need when you need it. And for, uh, for us older saints, take heart. Our God is real. Our God is still God. So we should still hope in him. He is the good shepherd, and we are his sheep. He is the Lord God, the Almighty. In Him we live and move and have our being. So let's cast our burdens on Him and trust in His grace. And for you saints in between, have courage. Our God keeps His promises. Seek Him. Follow Him. Lean on Him. Learn from Him. If you're afraid... He'll give you courage. If you need assurance, remember, he is the tent peg who holds secure your foundation, your salvation. If you're anxious, pray. Make your requests known to God so that the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And if you're weary, if you're heavy laden, come to Jesus. Take his yoke upon you, for he is gentle and humble of heart. And you'll find rest for your soul. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come now to a time of remembrance, the table of the Lord the bread and the wine. May these elements, may our participation in this supper be used by your Spirit to bring to remembrance your grace, your mercy, your compassion, our unity, our security, and our mission, all given to us through Christ, all imparted to us with certainty by your Holy Spirit, all for your glory. Father, this we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.